Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I'm talking to nature writer Lucy Jones about all things foxes in her first book, Foxes on Earth, a story of love and loathing in modern Britain. Lucy Jones is a nature writer and a journalist based in London. She was the deputy editor at NME.com and previously worked at the Daily Telegraph. And Her writing on culture, science and nature has been published in BBC Earth, BBC Wildlife, The Guardian, Time and The New Statesman. And she's contributed to programmes on BBC Radio 4, 6 Music and Radio 1 and the BBC World Service, Vice, Channel 5 and Channel 4. And She runs the Wildlife Daily blog featuring wildlife, nature and environment news from around the world and is the recipient of the Society of Authors Roger Deakin Award for Foxes Unearthed, A Story of Love and Loathing in Modern Britain, which is our first book, which we're going to talk about today. Lucy, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to go straight in and say you were deputy editor at The Enemy until recently, and now you're a nature writer. Do those two worlds cross over much? <laughs> That's a good question. I think um, I've always been... Like nature and wildlife has always been like a real passion of mine since I was a kid. Um, I was kind of brought up in quite a naturey house, and mm-hmm. I think like quite a lot of people, kind of as I became a teenager and in my twenties, pubs and music and gigs became a bit more interesting, and I kind of went towards that. And I, and I always loved music. And then, kind of a few years ago, I was at NME, kind of writing about music, and um, ended up in a rainforest in Sri Lanka, uh, which was amazing. And I just thought actually this is what I want to write about I really love um the natural world and and I also at the same time read a book by Naomi Klein called This Changes Everything Mm -hmm. which was kind of my red pill moment really in terms of the environment and um became very preoccupied with it and just thought can I make the change can I move to music from science and um ended up getting some work at BBC Earth and it all seemed to be going quite well so I made the jump to freelance and then started writing this book so um yeah I think music and nature and wildlife do there are kind of affinities between the two often you get you know people like both things and I still write a bit about music mm-hmm. but yeah it's wildlife and nature at the moment so tell me about the wildlife daily blog okay when did that start what, what is it <laughs> actually that again um that was like my kind of epiphany moment in this rainforest it was an amazing holiday actually I saw a blue whale for the first time I think the following day which was just incredible um and I thought I'm going to set up a little Tumblr blog and um, this is what I was still at enemy and I thought I can probably try and update it daily just to you know I was reading kind of scientific studies and then just writing a couple of paragraphs on them um, and I thought I'd just do it it was a bit of an experiment at first because mm. um, I've always worked in digital media so I, I was quite quick at kind of writing in that way and I knew how to use Hootsuite and social media and all that kind of thing and then actually it was through Wildlife Daily that Elliot and Thompson, the publisher of um, Foxes Unearthed, approached me. So it was a really, really good thing to do in the end. And I, I still do it. I think Wildlife Daily is a bit optimistic. Mm-hmm. It tends to be every few days. Um, but yeah, it's fun to do. you have been do. writing a book? I have, yeah, I have. So yeah, why Foxes then? So why, tell us how this book came about. Well, so there are a couple of reasons I think um, Foxes fascinated me. I mean, Elliot and Thompson did approach me and say we're looking for someone to write a book about foxes and then we developed the idea. But personally to me, I became quite aware at quite a young age that the fox 
um, was more than a wild animal, that it had a propensity to um, incite really strong emotion and opinion and that it could kind of change the atmosphere in a room, the mention of it. Um, and that was because I grew up in a family that had a bit of hunting in the past and a bit of farming as well. My watching of Animals of Farthing Wood, which was a great show in the early 90s, was questioned because the fox was a hero. So I became aware that this animal was kind of a flint for emotions mm-hmm. and it could kind of, it had interesting psychological implications and people either loved it or hated it. So that was quite an early realisation that that kind of interested me. And then um, I've been in London for about 12 years and um, seeing a fox on the street is just a thrill. I mean, you know, it's our the kind of final, last, largest carnivore and predator in this country mm-hmm. and I've always relished seeing them and been really interested in them as a species, wanting to find out more. Because, you know, when you see a fox, it's often serendipitous. You can't really go around looking... Well, you can, but it, it, it's quite tricky to observe foxes. But to see them, I, I don't know, it always had a kind of chemical effect on me almost. It's kind of a thrill and a, a flash of wildness that I... I loved and I wanted to know, I wanted to find out more about them. Mm. We're going to look at the representation of foxes in popular culture in a mm. moment, in, in literature going, going back into the past. Before we do that, let's talk about some, I guess, preconceptions. What do people think foxes are like? Well, I think lots of people think foxes are um, kind of vicious and marauding. These are the words that often get associated with foxes in kind of literature, culture, media reports. Yeah, vicious, angry, psycho even comes up. I mean, that's just so inappropriate, isn't it? And yeah, evil. I mean, and these ideas of the fox as a kind of cunning, vicious, trickster predator mm-hmm. um, are nothing new. They've been going back centuries and did quite a lot of kind of in-depth research into going back into the earliest um, examples of the fox being personified in this way but what's so interesting is that I think people still think that today mm-hmm. so kind of over the year or so that I was researching and writing the book I was surprised by how many people said well the fox kills for fun or but the fox kills babies you know people still still think that mm-hmm. and it's not true but then again okay so that's the, the negative side of course some people just think foxes are cuddly and lovely and sweet and fluffy which isn't true either you know they're predators mm-hmm. they eat have a really wide diet but they will kill other animals let's look at where some of those preconceptions come from then so aesop's fables i think was the first place that i saw foxes in literature when I was a kid mm. and there they're presented well in both ways really but the ones I'm f- most familiar with are the fox showing sort of like cunning and intelligence mm. yes well cunning and intelligence is um yeah in all the fox there's I think there's maybe 15 or so of the fables are about foxes um so the fox as told by Aesop has an appetite so Often the stories are um, the fox trying to get some food mm-hmm. and the fox is willing to go into another animal's space to get the food. And sometimes that's through cunning. Um, so you have the story, for example, the fox and the crow, um, where the crow is in a tree and it has a piece of cheese in its mouth. And the fox says, sing me a song, I bet you have a beautiful voice or something. And then the crow drops the cheese into the, to the fox's mouth. And that is a story that's been repeated again in mm-hmm. Chaucer, for example, Canterbury Tales. But there's also one of the fox and um, I think it's the, the the lion or the bear. So um, the lion and the bear is pretending to be ill in a cave and um, all the animals are going in to, to see it and then he, they never come out because he's eating them. But the fox realises because he sees the footprints. So he's even back then, centuries ago, millennia ago, the fox is being characterised in this way as being cunning and more intelligent than the other animals. And then that idea is picked up again and again particularly in the kind of Judeo-Christian world, and the biblical representations are very in line with that too. But they're often quite, those ones, the earlier ones, uh, see the, the cunningness of the fox in a more sort of benign way, I think. But then we get mm. the, the representation of the fox that people might be familiar with, Reynard the fox. Mm. So where does that come from and how does things change then? So Reynard the fox is, is a kind of 11th, 12th century uh, beast epic. Um, and we don't exactly know kind of who wrote it. It's thought to be a guy called Nivardus, who is a um, Flemish um, monk. And Reynard is is kind of celebrated for his cunning and, and being a trickster. But he is also, I mean, the Caxton translation was the one that mm-hmm. I looked at most of all. And and he Reynard's pretty dodgy. He does some really awful things. He's really kind of gory and mm. and really vicious and aggressive. But 
what kind of happened from that point is that in ecclesiastical art through the Middle Ages um, and medieval kind of church depictions, the fox became the go-to for the animal that was the devil preacher, um, the devil, um, the kind of trickster, and was was almost used as a kind of vehicle to, well, theories are that it, he was used to educate kind of the the communities to how to protect their livestock, mm. but also that um, the fox as that cunning trickster was a kind of um, satire on the there was a group called the Lollards who are kind of uh, false false preachers who are kind of trying to break off from the church so the fox is kind of being used as a scapegoat in those stories Um, and of course in the middle ages lots of people's only medium for for stories would be through the the church art so it's no surprise that this idea caught on whether it's completely true or not there's a a representation in sort of nineteenth century that I'd not come across before. Charlie mm. the fox. Yeah. So who's he? So Charlie is the name often given to the fox that is hunted. Um, so this is the fox of the, the fox hunt, and he started to appear in kind of the nineteenth century hunting literature. He's a little bit different. He's kind of kind of a bane in a way. He's quite clever. Um, he's beautiful. He's kind of sleek, and he has a nice coat, a nice rusty coat. He is a worthy opponent for the hunt. He is a rogue, but he's almost, he's quite human in it. Um, And he's different from the kind of Reynard character. Sometimes, in some of the hunting literature that I looked at, it almost implies that Charlie enjoys being hunted. Mm -hmm. That he, you know, and that makes him the worthy opponent, the worthy foe of the hunt. He kind of looks back with a wink. You know, he's trying to lose the tail of the hounds. It, it's an interesting depiction. I mean, there was an interesting theory by a guy called James Serpell, which I write about, which is that by building up the fox as this worthy opponent, it's almost a kind of it almost justifies the idea of the hunt. It makes mm-hmm. you know, it make, he's not. It, this was the moment where the fox turned from vermin to something to be celebrated and hunted, and and you know, it's still called Charlie to this day as well. There's still. After that, though, representations of the fox as the, you know, more like Reynard, more cunning and a bit evil. Mr. Todd. Mm. Tell us about Mr. Todd. So, it's interesting, actually. There are two kind of big Beatrix Potter fox stories. There is The Tale of Jemima Puddle Duck, which is an earlier one where Mr. Todd is is kind of your classic fox. He's he's cunning and he's kind of um, invites Jemima Puddle Duck over for supper and she's a bit confused when she sees all these feathers around and actually he gets his comeuppance in the end. But then there's a later, The Tale of Mr Todd, where actually the badger in the story is more of a villain and the fox in that story is actually... He's less of a kind of cunning Reynard character. He's less of a violent predator um, and we don't really know how Potter felt about it. I looked at her diaries, but I wonder whether her her attitude was changing towards foxes as... I mean, you can see attitudes in 18th century and 19th century literature changing towards animals. It's quite an interesting mm. um, attitudinal shift where, you know, animals started to be used to teach messages of kindness, of conscience, animal welfare. Movement was growing. There were things like black beauty, you know, where an animal was... Um, the subject of a book. So, I mean, it's a conjecture. I don't know if she, she changed her opinions, but Mr. Todd certainly slightly more in that vein. Of course, then, the big change is fantastic, Mr. Yeah. Fox. Yeah, um, so in most portrayals of foxes nowadays, the fantastic Mr. Fox and Disney's Robin Hood, they still display those traits of foxes of the cunningness and the intelligence but they're unequivocally the heroes of these stories now yeah exactly and i think i think roald dahl's fantastic mr fox in the 70s was the first example of the unequivocal hero fox um but with the predatory impulses Mm -hmm. and um for the book i had a lovely day going down to great missenden to the roald dahl archives in the museum and story center which is where he, he used to live and he wrote his books and there's lovely wood there where there's a big tree that where the foxes were supposed to live. And I kind of looked into his correspondence around the writing of the book and his American editors had suggested that he had toned down the violence of the fox and suggested that maybe, you know, they shouldn't shouldn't eat all the chickens. And he said, no, that's what foxes do. They do eat the chickens. And he was very much... We wanted to have an authentic depiction. The film's a bit different, interestingly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's kind of... Um, fox and that's maybe a bit sillier than in the book. Um, but certainly in the Fantastic Mr. Fox, you root, 
you root for the fox, don't you? Sure, He's not absolutely. just you're on his you're on his side. Before we move on to the reality, we'll look at foxes physiology and biology um but a couple of images of foxes in folklore that you talk about in the book um well one that has actually now been filmed as as really happening this idea of the fox playing dead Mm. tell us about that well this is a really old idea and story that um i think the first example i found of it was a guy called alien um a-e-l um in the it was the second century i think and um, so he wrote about the fox kind of playing dead to encourage birds to come towards it and then basically biting and eating the birds um, for its supper. And that idea of the fox playing dead is repeated throughout folklore. I was really, like, you know, sceptical about it. I just thought it was a story. Um, and then as I was kind of in the final editor of the book, I found a video that had been filmed in January of this year of some hunters in Siberia um, who'd caught an Arctic fox and... It was in a cage and it was absolutely kind of looked dead. It was kind of limp, uh, you know, its eyes were closed. And they opened the cage and suddenly the fox just sprung out. It was amazing and and ran off and it had some friends kind of 100 metres away or something. I mean, it could have been faked. I don't think so. I, I mean, I'd suggest looking up. It's really, really amazing. So perhaps it's true. I mean, certainly um, one of the questions I wanted to answer with the book was, is the fox more intelligent than other animals? Mm-hmm. You know, is it actually like scientifically possible that it could have this cunning? I mean, cunning is a, not probably not the right word, but these abilities. And I mean, it is a canid, so we know that it has a higher cognitive ability than um, other animals. But I think there's probably quite a lot about it that we don't know. And the other one I wanted to talk about, which is even more fun is this idea of how it gets rid of its fleas oh yeah so this is an old school tale it's an old folkloric tale which is that so the fox is being bothered by fleas as fleas kind of irritating it and on its fur and so to get rid of them it takes a kind of piece of straw or branch and it puts that in his mouth and then it goes into the water and then the fox, um, all the fleas kind of go towards this bit of wood in its mouth to kind of escape from the water, and then he just drops it, and they all drown, which is quite a nice tale. I mean, I don't think it's true. It sort of demonstrates not just that the fox is intelligent, but the fleas are as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. No, you're so right. I mean, I was, when I went to the Lake District to join um, a footpack hunt, because I wanted to... I wanted to investigate why people still hunt today and, and what was behind that. And um, one of the guys there, I mean, they were basically tag teaming um, fox folkloric, actual real fox trickster cunning stories. And, and one of them told me that as if it was absolutely true. So maybe it is. Who knows? I mean, I've never seen it, but the world's strange. <laughs> This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Lucy Jones and we're talking about her book Foxes Unearthed, a story of love and loathing in modern Britain. Yeah Lucy, I want to talk about foxes in reality now, Mm -hmm. Um, what their lives are actually like, what they're like and you mentioned already that you 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 attempted for the writing of this book to go out and look at foxes in Mm -hmm. the wild and... Although, as you mentioned, you know, if you live in a city, you see foxes all the time, you can't avoid them. But actually going out and wanting to look at them is not quite as easy as it sounds, is it? Yeah, it's quite frustrating at times, actually. My patch is like Walthamstow Marshes, um, which I love walking on and, you know, I often see kestrels there. I saw a waterfall there the other day, which is amazing. So I thought I'm going to go out there at dusk or dawn and, and find a fox family that I can observe um hopefully some cubs and i read a a book about it and kind of got all wore brown and blue and didn't put any perfume on so i didn't smell you know i I made like little little strategic tactics but i didn't see any on walthamstow marshes i went back again and again and you know the reason is that in the cities they're not walthamstow marshes is kind of quite a big marshland it's quite um quite wild and they're not i mean i'm sure they are there but in fact I hadn't seen a fox for a long time and I was really frustrated and the one that I saw quite early on in writing the book was in very built up Stoke Newington, you know, by some apartment blocks at eight o'clock at night, 
near loud pubs, lots of traffic. And it was just standing there, kind of gingerly, um, going about its business. And that's how I saw them. I mean, I had friends who had cubs at home, and I, I kept trying to go over and watch them. But I think that's one of the kind of wonderful thing about foxes. If you want to, you probably can observe them if you, you know, are going to go out every night. And it's quite an undertaking, unless you have a big garden and you're feeding them. But the kind of elusive, serendipitous thrill and the occasion of seeing them, I mean, it's still exciting, you know, because it's not like when you... For me, anyway, in Hackney, it's not like, you know, I see squirrels and pigeons every day. I don't see foxes every day. (laughs) And so even when I see them now, it's still really special. It's still the same thrill that it always has been for me and again you've already mentioned this earlier but they're now the largest predator Mm. wild predator in this country but that obviously wasn't always the case so what happened oh it's such a sad story (laughs) um well badgers are predators too of course but they're not so much in our cities and towns um and they're omnivorous well I did quite a lot of research around this act um, that Henry VIII brought in called the Vermin Laws, which was quite shocking, actually. I mean, at the time, obviously, there was lots of kind of poverty and illness and you know, Britain was recovering from uh, the plague, Black Death. And so a law was decreed that any predator must be killed and a bounty was put on the head of, e- of each animal. So mm-hmm. that involves kind of, you know, hedgehogs even, um, which were thought to take milk from cow's udders, um, different birds, and, and so, so many predators and animals were killed. I mean, the records are just galling. I was kind of reading through these church warden records. So many animals were killed. But even before that, I mean, the wol- wolves and bears and lynx, obviously, that we used to have in this country had all been wiped out. And I think that's why our relationship with the fox is so tense. Mm-hmm. and complicated is because even though it is relatively small it's not much bigger than a cat it's still the biggest one that we live with I mean, so many countries in in Europe and obviously all over the world do live side to side with much bigger carnivores but we wipe them all out which makes it's, it's really sad I think so why did the fox survive when like, the wolf or whatever did I think it's um well a simple answer would be its size so it's relatively unobtrusive not as much of a threat, obviously, as wolves, bears or lynx. So probably, yeah, less threatening. Um, also, it didn't become an animal that was hunted until... I mean, it was kind of hunted on a DIY casual level for a long time, but not officially and not kind of with gusto until um, the 19th century. So it wasn't a quarry animal particularly. Mm-hmm. It's also survived because... Well, it's just incredibly well adapted to all sorts of different environments. It can survive in mountains, cities, glacial regions, deserts. Um, And partly that's because it has such a wide and varied diet and it can really vary what it eats according to season, place, location, time of day. So, for example, they love worms or they eat fruit and they eat rodents and they can eat birds and they can scavenge. So I think, you know, I know it's a complex subject that, I mean, some people hate foxes, but I think we should celebrate them for that. They're kind of amazing the way they've survived. And we don't eat them, although obviously we don't tend to be predators anyway, but some people have. You can eat foxes. Yeah, you can. And the the earliest kind of archaeological digs that I was looking at, because foxes have been here in Britain long before we have, um, showed kind of fox bones um, in, in these caves and, and areas that have been dug up, which suggested perhaps that they had been used for food. Fox, uh, I, I found a guy who who loved roadkill, eating roadkill meat, and he sweetly invited me over to have um, fox cub stir-fry or lasagna. I woke up with a bit of a bad tummy that day, I'm not sure why. <laughs> but I didn't actually try fox, but um, I'm told... It's very uh, stringy and and tough, and you have to um, you have to stew it for a long time. But we've never we've never um, really taken to it. In Italy, actually, there was a village quite recently that had a big outbreak of food poisoning, and it was found that it was coming from fox meat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not unheard of, but um, I think generally seen as quite distasteful. So let's talk about the fox's life cycle, and actually the end of its life cycle first of all, because. One of the things that I found quite surprising is that they don't live very long, do they? 
Yeah, that was one. I was so surprised by this. So the average age of a fox um, um, living in a town or city or rural area is 18 months. I mean, in the wild, if there weren't kind of cars and so on around, they can live much longer than that for many, for for years. Um, I think the oldest fox that um, one of the scientists I was looking at was, was 14 years. So 18 months. And the main cause of death is vehicles. So it is car accidents. Um, but then mange as well, sarcoptic mange takes foxes a lot. Um, shooting, there's lots of fox get shot. And uh, other kind of injuries and misadventure. But um, it's interesting that the population of foxes really swells and then decreases every year. So come spring, when there's all the cubs, there's just over, I think, 400,000 in, in this country. Um, but then through the year that will decrease to 225,000 so it's a huge Mm. they really like regulate their populations and it kind of keeps them down so yeah that was that really shocked me the 18 months not long is it no it's not long at all and they have let's talk about their territory so a fox Mm. will have a very defined territory yeah so they're territorial animals and they tend to not kind of go into other ones and if if someone if a fox goes into another's territory they might get kind of a nip or a bark or you know they are they do defend their territories what i was so interested in was um what i learned about kind of the social groupings within the territories so previously it was thought that foxes were quite monogamous um a male and female with cubs bringing them up but actually it's not like that at all they have quite complex social groupings and there's such a thing as a kind of vixen nursemaid Mm -hmm. so there'll be um, barren vixens that kind of are basically nannies so will support the, the kind of matriarch vixen and help bring up the cubs and yeah there's quite a level of flexibility within within each group and skulk as it's called actually which is I think a lovely word and then I mean, with the the territories as well, there's dispersal, which happens around autumn, which is where a dog fox or sometimes a vixen will go and try and find another territory. So we'll go out there. Um, and there was an amazing fact that I, f- I found, I think it was from Foxes Live, um, where one fox had travelled the distance from Brighton to Manchester, I think, to find a new territory. So they can really... They can really travel far. And because we're able to tag them now, and there's mm-hmm. a great scientist called Dawn Scott in Brighton who does quite a lot of this, we can tag them. We're starting to really learn a lot more about yeah how they live, how they breed, how they mate, how they, you know, their territories. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to get onto next. What is being done? How are we studying them? Well, I think tagging is... Um, throwing up lots of lots of interesting information and there's lots of great scientists in Britain there's a guy called Stephen Harris in Bristol and there's David MacDonald in Oxford mm-hmm. who've done really kind of in-depth research David MacDonald wrote a book um, called Running with the Fox when he talked about foxes that he kept in his house and he really studied them and that is the kind of bible of like fox ecology and I learned a lot from that I think there's still quite a lot about foxes that we don't know and and you can see that through the proliferation of myth and rumour. I mean, so many people think these things about foxes which aren't mm-hmm. not necessarily true. One of the things that we've learnt recently through an interesting study, I think it was based in the Czech Republic, you know when the fox does a mouse pounce, so it's quite an iconic movement mm-hmm. where it will um, pounce into the air with all its might and then it will kind of land on, one imagines, a mouse or a, a, a vole or something in the snow or... And previously it was thought that it was using its incredible hearing or its incredible sense of smell to pinpoint exactly where Mm. that animal was. But a fascinating study found, watched these foxes doing this and found that they were all facing north and they were all succeeding when they faced north. So the theory is that they were using the magnetic fields to hunt. And that's something that, um, well, birds use magnetic fields to Mm -hmm. navigate. Lots of different animals do. I think earthworms do randomly. But... If this is true, it would be the first mammal to ever use that we know of that uses magnetic fields to hunt. So I think we're we're still we're learning things all the time. That was one of the examples that I I loved reading about. I thought that was fascinating. And let's talk again about how intelligent they are and what research has been done into fox's intelligence. Well, you can't really um you know give them an IQ test <laughs> or uh, you can't really kind of study their brains and that. 
in that time. I mean, my understanding of it was um, aided a lot by Dawn Scott, the scientist mm-hmm. I mentioned in Brighton. And she talked about how you know, we measure intelligence in animals um, as solving problems. So the fox is really good at solving problems. You know, it, it can get into a hen house if it's not locked up properly. It can hunt really well. It's evolved brilliantly, you know, in lots of different ways in the way it moves its uh, legs and like the length of its tail and in the, the senses that it uses, even in the specific mechanisms in its eyes, which allow it to um, hunt uh, in day and night and in the whiskers that's on its uh, face to solve problems and to get food. I think the idea of the fox being clever in a cunning way, it, I mean, it is really a fiction and it's kind of an anthropomorphic um, reading of the fox, which I think has been exaggerated to suit particular agendas. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the words clever, it's a tricky one yeah. to use of animals, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a good problem solver. That's what we can say. And let's talk about something about how they, how they raised their young. I've had in the past foxes in the garden like a fox a vixen making the nest in the garden mm. and three or four cubs wow. and the thing that's most striking about it is is how they play like how they sort of are obviously learning you know learning to hunt learning to you know chase insects around the garden yeah but just watching them play is just amazing it is amazing it's one of the most beautiful i think sights of the natural world seeing cubs play um and they kind of and that's how they learn that's part of you know, I suppose the way their brain develops mm-hmm. and they will kind of slightly kind of nibble or gnaw at each other. They will chase each other's tails, even kind of roly-poly around and somersaults. And, you know, they're, they're really playful and the vixen will kind of just look on and make sure make sure everyone's fine. But play is a really important part of development mm-hmm. um, and certainly just a wondrous sight to see. When we go to the third part of the show, I want to get us on to hunting. Before we do that... If such a thing is unimaginable, something that was worse than fox hunting. Tell us about fox tossing. Oh my god. I was I just couldn't even believe this was real when I read about it. Really it doesn't seem like it, does it? It's just horrific. So this was a aristocratic sport um that was popular I think it was the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. Um and it's literally as it sounds, so these aristocrat couples would gather in courtyards and they would get um, kind of lengths of elasticated material and they would put a fox on it and then they would toss the fox as high as they possibly could into the air and then whoever got the highest fox tossed was the winner, I suppose. And this was a really popular sport, from what I can tell. It's also the really, it's a really gross detail, which is that... Um, they would do it at a masquerade ball, so they'd all be dressed up in their mm-hmm. fineries with their masks on, and they'd even dress the fox up in a, in a dress or in an outfit, which is just so horrible. Um, but there was an example of um, some prince in Saxony, I think, who tossed about 400 foxes. I mean, it's fascinating to think how far we've come. Other things as well, actually, we should say, it wasn't just foxes they were tossing. Yeah, they were tossing other, um, I think, was it like squirrels? And hares and hares? cats oh. and... Yeah, I feel I can't. I mean, it's. Just, I mean, you think you know about bear baiting and cock mm-hmm. fighting and all that kind of thing, but fox tossing just seems another level of humiliation. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny and I'm talking to Lucy Jones about her book Foxes on Earth, a story of love and loathing in modern Britain. And yeah, let's move on to the the meaty subject of fox hunting then, mm. Lucy. So how long have we been doing that? What's the sort of history of fox hunting in this country? Um, well, in this country, the first, the first kind of uh, record of fox hunting is actually Alexander the Great, so that's in Greece. Um, but then you've got people like, um, I think, King Canute, fox hunted, but it was all very kind of casual and and not really formalised until the 18th century. So basically at that point, um, there weren't any other animals left really to hunt. Mm -hmm. We'd wiped out the big ones like the wolves, the bear, the lynx, and there were less deer. So attention turned to the fox. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that was kind of brought up and as a new quarry animal and like we talked about it became this charlie figure and Mm -hmm. it was it changed from vermin to a kind of worthy opponent and partly that was because um some kind of influential aristocratic men spent time organizing the hunt so they made it much uh, faster they bred um much better horses thoroughbreds bred better hounds it became a really kind of fast and furious and kind of more exhilarating sport and at the time obviously the british landscape was really different from how Mm -hmm. it is now there weren't any motorways or barbed wire and so kind of the the high society could go out and and just you know cross cross the countryside hunting foxes and then the golden age was kind of the 1800 to maybe 1870 um, which was when it became really popular and more of a kind of national sport. And it does seem a uniquely British thing. There's been failed attempts to export it to places in the empire and to America and what have you, but it's not something that happens on the continent particularly. No, I mean, there are, um, fo- and there have been fox hand packs in other European countries and America, but it never seemed to take off in the same way that it did in England. I think there are different reasons for that. I think... Partly it kind of chimed with Victorian ideas of kind of the gentleman and the kind of aristocracy at the time. Mm-hmm. But also the horses in Britain were specifically fast because they were bred. Well, this is a, a theory which interested me. Elizabeth, after the Armada, said, you know, our foxes are uh, Queen Elizabeth, our horses, sorry, are, are too slow and rubbish. And so she brought in some really kind of thoroughbred horses and they they bred these really fast ones and mm-hmm. they, they didn't kind of occur in other places. So I think it was specifically really um, speedy over here. Um, in a, I mean, in America they do hunt foxes, but even today they don't, I don't think they actually kill them at the very end. In Australia it did catch on a little bit. But definitely nowhere else like it did in Britain. And why? What are the sort of? I mean, apart from it being a lark, obviously, what are the uh, what are the main reasons for doing it that are cited? Well, I think it's being outside. I mean, very simply speaking, just being outside in the beautiful countryside. I mean, if you love riding and you love horses and you love being outside, I mean, it's a way to kind of experience all of that. From quite early on in the hunting literature that I found, there's a really strong sense of kind of your identity as a fox hunting man. You know, you were like a jolly good chap mm-hmm. if you were a hunter and and you had status as well. You had If you were a master of a fox hunt, you know, you had status in the community. It was a really, really big part of the army and the military um, kind of before cavalry turned into tanks in the Second World War. You know, that was... Mm-hmm. It was. I was really interested to read this. I mean, the, the soldiers would hunt 
officers really it was more an officer class thing but they would be hunting like five days a week you know, it was it was very much a huge part of their training and they thought that fox hunting made you you know a better a better army man what's the current legal situation because obviously under blair it was it was sort of banned but yeah things of there's the sort of movement to change that again obviously so what's going on so hunting um, a wild mammal with dogs is banned, as it has been since 2004 and it came through 2005. But the law is that you have to prove intention to hunt, and that is where things get a bit complicated because mm-hmm. um, it's the, the assertion of anti-hunting groups, such as the League Against Cruel Sports and the Hunt Saboteurs, that hunting is still continuing, as it always was, but that it's really difficult to prove intention. So a hunt may go out with a pack of hounds and find a fox by accident, you know, and the fox might die by accident. But if there's no if there's no proof of intention, then it's not against the law. The law itself is very um, complex. Lots of people think it's a, a really bad law, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of made it unworkable anyway, hasn't it? Because there's not really any... Yeah. Convictions or anything. There has been quite a lot of convictions under the hunting app, but not so much for fox hunting actually. Mm-hmm. It's more things like um like hair coursing and, and lurching and things like that. I mean also of course hunts do take place on private land, um, which is so it's quite difficult to kind of know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um even when I went out so I experienced both sides. I went out on a hunt and I went out with saboteurs to sabotage a hunt for the book. And it was their um, assertion that they were hunting foxes, wanting to, but it was quite difficult to really know exactly what was going on. Um, I think they were saying that they were just exercising their horses and they were just kind of going out and about. The sabs would say, "Well, why are you out at seven a.m.? You know what? And why are you all here, kind of all you know, dressed up like this?" So it's very, very difficult to to know what's going on. But certainly, there have been some convictions, and there are other things that have happened, like. Um, quite a lot of cubs were found in a barn um, about a year ago and the allegation would be that they were being kept by a hunt to in order to hunt mm-hmm. uh, and that's actually something that's quite historic you know hunts would preserve conserve look after foxes you know keep them on their land feed them even um, and in fact they were imported in in the 18th century and and you know they were sold in leadenhall markets mm-hmm. so hunts would go down and buy a fox and that, that was not seen as the done thing you know you didn't want to hunt a bagged fox it was kind of seen as bad sport but that's another ambiguity within the the story of the fox in this this country is that you know hunting people can actually do actually kind of look after foxes in order to hunt them or just because they they actually love them. It's yeah, that was one thing that I found quite difficult to get my head around, um, but fascinating too. Well, your position on this is slightly ambiguous anyway, because there was um, hunting in your family, wasn't there? Tell us about um, your yeah. grandfather's story. Well, um, so my grandfather hunted after the Second World War, so he came back, um, and I think he was kind of in his mid twenties. He'd actually got into fox hunting before the war, and from what I've been told, it was because he kind of loved loved horses and loved hounds. It sounds like he had quite a traumatic time in the World War. He ended up in Bergen-Belsen and then returned. And it's my understanding that he, he went out hunting kind of after that and loved kind of being outside, loved, loved the animals, loved kind of the the noses of the hounds as they got a scent i never was alive at the same time that he was alive and hunting mm-hmm. he stopped hunting before i was born so I, I never really got a chance to talk to him about it but my way of investigating that for the book was well to talk to relatives and to look at his hunting library which is quite obscure and substantial and dusty but interesting um in my position on hunting isn't really ambiguous i in the book i wanted to explore why people hunt you know what is it that they get from it mm-hmm. um and i understood much more from from my research and from going on a hunt the ideas of kind of tradition and identity and social bonding and how important that can be to a rural minority personally i will say that i cannot get my head around the final act mm-hmm. like uh, even though the science is a bit we don't have a study like we do with deer that proves that the fox is you know, unequivocally stressed chemically at the end. However, you know, and I do say this in the book, as a mammal, mm-hmm. I cannot imagine that being chased and then ripped apart at the end 
is nice. I just can't. I just no, can't really it, get it over that. Certainly, seems not a pleasant experience. No, yeah. no. I mean, I can understand. And what I mean, things I, I learned things like um, people often people who go hunting, they never see the kill. Most of them won't see the end bit, so they can kind of maybe detach themselves yeah. a bit. And it's more about you know getting together for a drink and a nibble, and you know being social, and you know those things are you know really important to human psychology. I, I totally understand that, but yeah, I I don't I can't I can't really. I can't really believe that it doesn't cause some harm to the animal to be chased. And the arguments about pest control and wildlife management, I wasn't really convinced by mm. them. And what about the other side then? So you went out with the, the hunt saboteurs. Mm. Strikes me that in a lot of ways, that's about going out in the countryside with your mates and having a good time as well. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was, a again, a really strong sense of kind of bonding and identity and... There was shared motive, um, and it was a lot of exercise. And we went out in this beautiful estate in England. I won't say where, um, but it was a stunning private estate. And it was dawn, and there was kind of dew on the fields, and there was kind of a deer in the gloaming. And um, the whole the whole experience was quite interesting in that you know, the hunt were or were not chasing a fox and we were chasing the hunt and then we were being chased by kind of farmhand terrier men on quad bikes yeah and I think I mean the hunters looked really angry and I think we definitely annoyed them I mean there was quite a lot of us there were lots of people in balaclavas but it was it I was really shocked actually I didn't realize how much violence there is kind of between the two groups and um one of the guys I was with when the saboteurs was assaulted just behind me he was punched in the face. The women I was with were genuinely scared about being hurt and I was told, you know, not to be head on to a quad and to always look behind myself six steps. I mean, my experience of it was I only went out there one day and, and I think there have been convictions on both sides and certainly the hunters would say that the saboteurs, you know, behave badly and, violent. you know, there's there's a lot of of viciousness on both sides um however um the day that i went out i didn't see any i didn't see any violence from from them it was more monitoring it was more filming what was going on mm-hmm. and you know some of them did say things like they they hated the system that hunting stood for but they all seemed to really love foxes and i know of course class comes into it and the class war thing but but i did feel like my experience with them was that they just wanted to save foxes mm-hmm basically. It's probably true to say that most of the opposition to fox hunting when it uh, when it became illegal was from city folk and now it seems they're not particularly extending the same courtesy to urban foxes which are becoming a bit of a you know a sort of urban legend a bit of a nightmare. We do see urban foxes differently to wild foxes don't we? I mean they're all wild but you know what I mean. Yeah I think actually if you look at the recent attitudes towards the fox the interesting one is this kind of hatred and loathing towards the urban fox. People call pest controllers to kill them in their gardens. And uh, I went out with one and he said, you know, he gets regular work. Um, I think a lot of it is media driven. I mean, most people I spoke to like seeing foxes in the cities mm-hmm. and towns. But the urban fox, when it's written about, is often, um, I mentioned some of these words, you know, words like psycho or vicious or marauding or evil or angry or red-eyed is attached to it in news reports particularly in the last 15 or so years and I think that has bred fear and possibly ignorance as well because you read about things like oh foxes are getting bigger there's no evidence for that or foxes are killing babies I mean that is a different subject but it's much more complex and no person has ever been killed by a fox. There was an incident where like a bunch of people were trapped in a house by a fox. That sounded really silly. Oh yeah, so that was like this place in Cambridge. There was these people and they were I think drinking and they came out and this fox trapped them in there and then this like pest controller came and he was so scared he had to like run back to his van, at which point you have to wonder if he's in the right job. And the way it was written about, like the quotes the guy, they were like really scared of the fox, and they were like running for their lives. I mean, the fox is really—it's really small, and of course, it's a wild animal, and you know, sometimes wild animals can be scary. But I think it's—you know—in the press, the fox can have a really bad reputation, and and be kind of—you see it on like captions. They'll be called it'll be called monster, you know, when it's really just quite a small animal. 
So as a final question then, let's talk about how we can coexist with the foxes better. Um, I think that questioning myths and rumours um, and reports of the fox would be helpful in just making us all a bit more kind of ecologically literate. I mean, foxes don't kill for fun. You know, they don't kill babies. They d- they're not getting bigger. But I think also questioning our perception and attitudes towards the fox. So even though the animal's not anywhere near to going extinct in this country, I think the kind of like the demonization and the intolerance towards it is similar to attitudes that old historic attitudes humans have had to the natural world, mm-hmm. you know, and tied up in that is ideas of kind of dominion you know, the biblical idea of us kind of being stewards of the of, of the land. And we are actually in an environmental crisis at the moment. There's um, horrific species extinction. I think it's 10,000 species a year. Obviously, climate change, habitat destruction. And I think the way we think about and talk about the fox, I mean, I'm getting pretty serious here for a minute, but it's similar to the, you know, the way that we we have this kind of extractive nature attitude towards nature and the world. I think we should kind of celebrate the fox and be glad that it's still here. Mm -hmm. Um, We managed to wipe out so many animals and, and many, many species are declining at horrific rates. And if the fox is able to survive in our manscape, then I think that's something we should, yeah, celebrate and appreciate. I think that's a good point for us to finish. So I've been talking about Foxes Unearthed, a story of love and loathing in modern Britain, which is by Lucy Jones. It's out now from Elliot and Thompson. Lucy, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you so much. The pleasure was mine. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.